Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest runs Pronomos Capital, the first venture fund for charter cities and network states. He coded at Google for 10 years, runs a small angel fund since 2011, has degrees in math, CS, and business, and has been a leader in the competitive governance space for over 20 years. Please welcome to the show, Patri Friedman. Patri, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm very happy to have you here. You know, I've been following your work on and off for many years now. I'm a big fan of what you do. So I guess my first question is kind of, how did you get started in this field in charter cities and decided that you wanted to do venture funds and these things? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's just the normal story of somebody who like makes a product because they want to use it and it doesn't exist, right? So I'm a libertarian, my, my family are libertarians. And after college, I was kind of like, all right, what is the nature of the society that I'm in? And does it like fit my values? And I looked at the US and was like, well, no, like not really, you know? And so I said, okay, well, what's what's going on here? Like, let's explore this as a problem, like I would in college or something. Why is it, you know, that this government doesn't kind of fit? Well, libertarianism is like a minority viewpoint. Like most people have a different idea about how politics should be. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I just need to be in a different country. And I kind of like studied countries around the world and visited some of them and saw that like each of them had kind of a different package of what they were offering to me as a citizen. You know, there were some that were maybe better than the US, but there was none of them where I was like, oh yeah, that's my tribe. That's my people. And that sucked. I was like, what's going on here? And so I spent some years like reading politics and economics and trying to dig into this question of like, why aren't there like great offerings for people like me? And so I came to this idea of competitive governance, where I look at government as an industry, where like every country is a a firm that's like selling its services to the citizens, you know, so like you pay your taxes and you get your government services. And I saw that this industry has no startups. There's no way that a group of people can be like, hey, here's a tribe of people. There's this new cryptocurrency thing, whatever it is, who want to live in this certain way under this certain system of laws. Let's go and create a society based on that so that they can live in it. That just doesn't exist. And so that's been my work for about 20 years is trying to figure out, well, how can we make it so that people can start new societies, new cities, new countries, so that people like me who are looking for a place to live that aligns with their values can find it. I resonate with that very much. I'm a lifelong libertarian and I visited over a hundred countries now traveling in my life and have certainly looked for libertarian countries or libertarian governments. And it doesn't really exist. Yes, you can have more freedom in certain types of countries, but there's no like Shangri-La, one magic place that has all of the things that fall within our belief pattern. What my strategy has been over the years is to really stack different jurisdictions and get different freedoms where I can in different places. So following flag theory and perpetual travel and these types of things. But I like your approach of trying to actually go out there and tackle this and to create something and help support other organizations who are trying to reshape freedom. So first of all, I think that's fantastic work that you do. Second of all, how has your work been going? Great. (laughs) Finally, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like it must be very interesting over the last two and a half years to see the wake up for a lot of people and the renewed interest in freedom and really what this means. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, for me, it's been, I, I started working on this stuff in the early 2000s, right? So it's been like over 20 years. You know, I wrote my first paper about this idea of like governments competing for citizens back in like 2002, 2003. And my first version of it, what's called seasteading. It's just that like in the 2000s, it was like, okay, we need a way to start new societies, try out new systems of rules and regulations. And countries were not at all willing to like work with us to do that. And so, you know, traditionally the frontier is the place where people go and are able to like create new jurisdictions. All land is taken. The ocean is the next frontier. So I, you know, I worked on that. Like, how can we settle the oceans? And it's really difficult. It's really difficult and expensive to settle the oceans. And, you know, but like the idea of opening a new frontier made a lot of sense. It's a shame we didn't see you down here at the Ocean Builders in Panama for their their grand opening a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I, I unfortunately wasn't able to, to make it, but I was, I'm really excited to see their progress. It's pretty neat. I was out there. I'm friends with Grant and with Chad and all of those types of guys. So it would have been neat to see you down here in Panama. They're doing a lot of cool work with those types of things as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to visiting. You know, so I'm still on the board of the Seasteading Institute and we're buying one of these Ocean Builders pods and we're going to like set it up as a CB&B, you know, like an Airbnb. And I'm really excited to put into it. People are always sending me self-published fiction in the world of seasteading, which I really enjoy. And of course, there's all these like beautiful like renderings, like seasteading just fires up the imagination so well. And so I'm really excited to like have like a sea pod where you can like kind of like read all of the classic books about like seasteading and new countries and see, I mean, there's board games that people have made about seasteading, novels that they've written, and just like having a place where people can go and stay and you're like living on the water, surrounded by kind of all of this like culture and material about the world of seasteading. So I you know I think that's really exciting. But also in 2010, the country of Honduras changed its constitution to create the world's first program for making, well, what Paul Romer calls charter cities, but basically like special jurisdictions, the evolution of the special economic zone, where the zone has significantly different laws and institutions than the rest of the country. And so I've been working, you know, for the last 10 years or so with countries like Honduras on creating these programs where you can make a city that has kind of its own laws. And it's like one step towards this idea that that we talked about in the beginning, like actually going out and someday making new countries. Amazing. Yeah, I've followed the progress in Honduras quite a bit. The government, the direction that they're changing in Honduras is very sad. You know, it's such a beautiful thing is being built there. And a woman runs on the idea of tearing it down and somehow gets elected. Do you have any updates on how things are going there? Are you still positive about Honduras or is it going to be more of a test run and now we can take these types of ideas to other countries and and carve out areas in there? I'm optimistic that things will work out in Honduras to mutual benefit. So my fund, Pernomus Capital, is an investor in Honduras Prospera, which is operating in the island of Roatan and they're building and making jobs for Hondurans you know, more and more jobs every day. And that's a good thing. They're supported by the law. And while the Honduran government has has chosen to close down the program and not accept any new zones, I I don't think that's a good decision, but of course it's their choice. I think that we're going to see over time, like a really big positive impact from the work of Honduras Prospera on the local economy, you know, just growing, growing, growing over time. Well, I can see that because there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of hiring the local population and giving them work and giving back. And from my understanding, you know, there's a real interaction of the locals and of the foreigners and expats who are coming into the community. There's a lot of mutual respect. This is not some colonialist type of thing. This is trying to work together and build something. So maybe under the administration next time, maybe they'll see all of these types of things and actually be hoping that the expats and the foreigners actually want to stay in Honduras because it'll have such a positive effect. I'd like to think that. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone involved shares an interest in Honduras prospering, right? And having like good jobs for Hondurans. And I think that's hopefully something that everyone involved can connect around. Okay. Now there's several other projects in Honduras. I don't know too many of those ones. Are you involved in them as well? Or really the focus is on Prospera itself? 
I'm not involved in the other ones. There are two others that are there and, you know, continuing to operate that were kind of set up before the program was ended. Mm -hmm. And so Prospera, the laws right now is that no other areas are going to be able to join it. That's what's been stopped right now. Well, I mean, I'm not the best person to talk about this because I invest in these projects around the world, but yeah, like, like roughly they set up the program starting in 2010 and I actually worked with Honduras back in 2011, 2012, but the program kind of wasn't ready then. It took them like a number of years to actually be able to launch it, you know, given that it's like the first time in the world that a country has done something like this, which is really incredible. And kudos to the team there that, that put this together. So what are the projects that you're really excited about these days? What are the ones that you're working on that really keep you up at night and have you excited and, and energized to talk about? Yeah. So my job is to invest in what I call these sovereign communities around the world. And I define a sovereign community as a group of people who get together and they see like some part of the tech stack of their life that's like not working. And, you know, and that could be anything from like money as in like Bitcoin to like healthcare, education, transportation, like the laws and municipal governance, like any part of that stack. And they say, you know what? we're going to like take this back. We know that there's economies of scale and operating whatever this is, but we kind of like don't like how it's being done. We're going to take it back ourselves, rebuild it at a small scale and like deploy it locally. And so I think of Bitcoin as a sovereign community because they did this for money. They said like, okay, central banks are using this money that they're inflating all the time. We don't like that. We want this non-dilutable currency. So we're just going to create it. And we're kind of taking back sovereignty over our currency for ourselves. And like a charter city, a company that's working with the government to create one of these special jurisdictions is saying, okay, let's take like this kind of like regulatory environment, municipal government, that's what we're going to take back and we're going to like redesign it ourselves locally. And so that's what we're looking for around the world is groups of people who are just taking over some part of that stack. But it could also be something like cul-de-sac, America's first car-free neighborhood in, in Arizona, where they're just saying like, hey, we're going to like redesign neighborhoods to use 21st century transportation technology. They're like reclaiming that part of the grid from the system and saying, no, 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 no. Like we're going to do this ourselves differently. So I think it's like a really, really fun time right now. I mean, it, it kind of like sucks. Like as a customer, it sucks that like so many of the systems that our lives run on are like falling apart or not working very well. But like as a builder, like a tinkerer, like an investor, it's a great time because there's like all this stuff that's not working that has to be redone. I think now is a time when the economies of scale and governance and education and healthcare and money and all these things are outweighed by the fact that they're all being done in these kind of legacy ways really poorly. And it's a time when like local groups, you could make like a 10,000 person village with your own healthcare system and probably do better than a lot of countries do right now. So it's like a really, really fun time when individuals can create communities that are actually do a better job than these mega countries that we're part of. Amazing. Yeah, I think that's how you and I got connected in the first place. I think it was my business partner, Michael Strong, who introduced us because he does a lot of the education, building online communities for schools and alternatives to state-run education. And I've partnered with him to do an international version of his domestic school and to kind of take a lot of the ideas and move them offshore. So as you know, we do real estate projects in Central America and things like this, not in Prospera and trying to change all the government, but small communities with homes and trying to pipe in different alternatives like the education or using Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrencies for these types of things. There's so much to be said for this because as government has a stranglehold on so many different institutions in the world, it really makes it very difficult if you're dependent on them for everything to have any freedom in your life. So one by one, if you can take these back, as you had said, and find alternatives to it, then the possibilities of freedom really start to open up. So that's what we've been really focusing on the program over the last, say, year or so, is learning about different agricultural techniques, different forms of government, different forms of self-defense. And I don't want to say prepping by any means, because that's not really the idea, but it's more of a self-reliant community. And then how do we support each other through this? Yeah, that's beautiful. It, it, it's wonderful you're working with Michael Strong. He's one of the one of the few people out there who was thinking about these ideas for more than 20 years, like back in the 90s. He was definitely one of my inspirations. And he was also working very early uh, with Honduras on, on trying to create these zones. 
So that's, that's beautiful. But for tech people, you can think of it as like, there's this whole like suite of tools that we live under, right? The education system, the health system, the financial system, like our currency. And there are parts of that that work pretty well. And there's parts of that that work really poorly. And I'm just really excited to be working with the people who are seeing the parts that work poorly and like, no, we're going to redo that. Let's reinvent that. So do you think it's technology that is allowing us to make so much leaps and bounds right now? Or do you think that it's the motivation of people because of what we've seen over the last couple of years of an encroachment on people's freedoms? Or is it something else? Because we have seen a a massive shift lately. Yeah, I I have this idea that the 21st century began in March of 2020, that for the first 20 years, technology was kind of changing everything invisibly, right? But like the legacy system were still hanging on and pretending that it was still the 20th century. And that was kind of the cover that was on everything. And I feel like COVID kind of came and ripped off that cover. And it's like, no, wait, actually, like this is the 21st century. 21st century is different from the 20th century in some like really significant ways, right? Cryptocurrency and decentralization and movement to individual sovereignty and the way that technology impacts our lives and like all these things. And the legacy systems are going to have to adapt or die because that's just the way of the universe. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been in the last few years, like a huge increase in the number of people who are open to these kinds of ideas, who are like wanting to live in, in sovereign communities, wanting to design and build their own sovereign communities, which has been, you know, really great for this space that people like Michael Strong and I have been working on for 20 years of, of saying, hey, we've got to find new ways to live together. We have to find new political and economic and social systems. And to do that, we and we don't do that by like sitting around and just talking about it, right? And like going to the bar and having a drink and being like, oh, I hate capitalism or I love capital, <laughs> like whatever. No, it's it's much more, you know, I think about government like a an entrepreneur or like an engineer. It's like an actual thing that you actually build for actual people and deploy and then like see how it works and like tinker with it. And that's what we need. We need people starting societies that have their own like rules, their own different ways of living and are trying out some options, right? And like, those are the test beds. And then we'll see which ones work and which ones don't. We'll scale like more people should move into the communities that are working well, that are making healthy, vibrant, prosperous people. And, you know, that's kind of, to me, what an efficient governance industry looks like. We've got these huge firms like the United States or Canada. They're really big. They're not going to go away anytime soon. They're very strong and stable and powerful. They're also doing a pretty crappy job. They're not innovative at all. A lot of people are like really dissatisfied. And from kind of that place, we want to be building what is the next generation? What are the places that are going to be like the United States was in the 19th century? And it was like, hey, we implemented this radical new political system that Europeans said that we were crazy. The like constitutional representative democracy, like I don't think it's the best political system that can exist. I think we can do much better, but it was a huge innovation at the time, right? It was way better than other political systems. And so it triumphed. The U.S. grew really fast. There was all this economic opportunity, created all this wealth and value. And like, that was amazing. But now it's the 21st century, right? What are the next frontiers? Like, what are the next places that are explored like that? And I think it's these charter cities and network states is something else we can talk about. A network state is a group of people who are organized around a set of shared values online. And then eventually they materialize into physical locations together. Things like that, I think, are the new frontier. Yeah, because I think that a lot of these legacy programs, as you had said at the beginning there, adapt or die. Sometimes I go back and forth on what is going to happen because some of them, it just looks like there's just no way for the to adapt. They're just dragging their heels so much on these types of things. And I have no hope for them. But at the same time, they're fighting so hard to hold on and to control people. I just don't know what's going to happen for society because it just looks like a controlled demolition on all fronts. You know, they're going down with the ship and they're going to bring us with them. And it's going to come to a head or it already has come to a head. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is where the power of exit and voting with your feet, voting with your wallet, voting with your passport comes in. And I'm a huge fan of of exit to the degree where sometimes when people want to like attack the idea of exit, they attack people like me in the media. Me too. Me too. (laughs) 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 But just the idea of if you're in a system that's not working, one thing you can do is try to fix it and try to exert influence within it. And another thing you can do is to switch to a different system that's working better. 
and that that switching is one of the most powerful forces in the universe for good, right? Good things come from trying a bunch of different things and then shifting resources from the stuff that's not working into the stuff that's working. Like it's great. And we, you and me, like we are among those resources, right? That can choose to shift. And so it's really clear that the West is in decline, right? You can look at like Ray Dalio has like actually quantified this and gone interviewed all historians and made the, made the charts and such. And you can get a, like a lot of mileage out of a declining empire, right? It's not going to collapse tomorrow, but it's it's clearly on the downslope. And that's why I love working with these kind of vibrant communities around the world. I'm working places like Nigeria, Malawi, Bhutan, Palau, small jurisdictions that are kind of eager to like try new laws and bring in new people and and try new things, you know, from within the shadow of like a failing empire, you know, where I sit here in in my home in the in the mountains of the California Bay Area, which I think still has one of the highest concentrations of wealth in the world. And I think the highest concentration of interesting people in the world, but is also the state government doesn't work very well. The national government doesn't work very well. It's like a failing empire. This is the base from which I go out to other parts of the world, more like exciting, innovative parts of the world that are actually like building the future. Well, going to your comparison of the 20th century to the 21st century, from our side, I think that the 20th century was really about trying to fix the programs in the States and Canada, talking to your local representation or to your congressman or these types of things. I think that's a really 20th century idea. And I think 21st is more what you're working on now, which is, you know what, that's just not going to work. Exit, build something new, start from fresh. And there's just no way to change the minds of these big institutions. And I don't even want to try. Like, I just, I have no energy for that. It doesn't excite me. I've seen people spend their entire lives beating their head against the wall trying to do this and have gotten nowhere. So I think that the important work that you're doing right now and others in this field and people we've mentioned on today's program. I think that so many people are coming together and are coming to the same conclusion that we need to exit, that we need to start from scratch and build something together. Awesome. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. I respect those who are like trying to find the levers to affect the existing institutions. You know, there's a lot of people and a lot of value like locked into those institutions and that's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, look, I was at Google for 10 years from 2004. As a software engineer, I know that what systems really need to be fixed or to improve is to be rewritten from a blank slate. And that's just what you have to do, like you're saying. And it's really exciting that we live in it. And it sucks that we live in a time when like the big old systems are failing because man, you know, it would be nice to work on something else or worry about something else. But as it happens, we we live in a time when what's happening is these legacy systems of government and legislation and money and finance are kind of visibly aging and creaking and failing around us. And that's what needs to be rebuilt anew. I don't know. I think that's pretty fun. All right, let's tinker with that. And that's you know, one reason I love the cryptocurrency industry is that these people are getting to rebuild the entire financial system, including primitive money and like hard money from scratch, which I think is just so fun and, and beautiful and needed and like so very 21st century, right? It's what we need to get away from the 20th century. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. So I'm a big history buff. I have read a thousand and one history books over the years and looking at different civilizations, not just, you know, Western civilizations, but because my wife is from China, learning a lot about Asian culture and Asian history and things like that. And you read about these monumental changes that happen in the world. My question to you is, do you think that these changes are happening at an accelerated rate than any other time in history? Because we have the internet, we have the sharing of ideas. We have programs where we're talking to each other virtually, but it's like we're in the exact same room. There's never been this ease of communication. So what's your opinion on the time frame? Because we are seeing a shift right now, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely true that the increased wealth and increased technology is accelerating the rate of change. And that means that's destabilizing, right? It's like tough from a security perspective. We all want security, safety for things to be predictable and known and understood. And we don't get that these days and that sucks. But at the same time, in terms of the influence that individuals can exert, right? Our power to like patch and fix and update and even replace parts of the system has never been higher. And so that's the kind of countervailing aspect to that fact that we don't have like long-term safety and security. I mean, you know, a thousand years ago, you could probably make a decent prediction about what 
the future will be like in a hundred years. But now a hundred years is past the horizon of AI, for example, right? Or it's like crazy, like nanotech that could like rebuild our entire bodies or like biotech that could, you know, either make like every human super, super healthy and brilliant or just kill us all, right? So we live in a time when because of that leverage of technology and the rate of change, the future is really unpredictable, right? And that's hard, but it also means that we're in a time of high personal impact. And so I think it's really important that good people, which is most people, are thinking about the future and looking at the world and then like taking action to fix parts of it. You know, and I think what you and I share is this understanding that fixing parts of it is not like putting a sign for who's going to win the next election, like in your front yard. Like, yeah. <laughs> like we actually need to go and build things at the scale where a small group of people can really like rebuild and pioneer them, like the size of like a village or a city, like the projects that I invest in. Amazing. It just seems like everything is so condensed right now, you know, over the last couple of years. And I, and I would foresee the following couple of years to see what might've taken a decade in another time is taking 12 months now. And I think that within the next couple of years, we won't even recognize the world as it is today. So yeah, it's just really fascinating to be working on the front lines in these types of things. Okay, I am sure that you have heard me talk about it. We were able to acquire expatmoney.com, our new website. We started completely from scratch. Yes, we still have the expatmoneyshow.com website, but it's really being used just for the podcast itself. But obviously, this is much bigger than just a podcast. A podcast is great, and I love this podcast, and I love everybody who's listening to this, but that is only one small piece of the puzzle. If you go to expatmoney.com, our brand new website, you will see a new blog, new webinars, tons of different resources to help you, as well as a shop and a place that you guys can get special consulting services if you want to work with me, if you need a helping hand on this. So go to expatmoney.com, expatmoney.com. Check out the new website, bookmark the website, subscribe to everything there, and it's going to be amazing. I'm super pumped about it, and I hope you are too. Now, I am curious because you mentioned some of the other countries that you're working in. I know because you have a fund, there's probably some proprietary things or some things that you're not able to share, but I would love to hear about some of the other projects that you're working on in foreign countries or places that we should start to research or start to keep an eye on, you know, trends that you're seeing. Yeah. So I'd say my long-term mission is to help upgrade humanity to 21st century governance and doing it right now through like creating these actual existing in real life communities like Honduras Prospera, where they're are getting to rebuild part of the stack that they live in. Some of our other companies that I'm really excited about, there's Talent Cities in Nigeria. So they're building their first project, which is called Itana. And Nigeria has this huge population, this huge tech population, and you know, as well as a lot of cultural impact in Africa through music. And so it's this really, really important hub for Africa. But the government struggles and the infrastructure is often not very good. A lot of Nigerian tech workers leave the country, you know, whether it's to the US or Canada or other places for jobs. And so creating a campus that has solid, solid infrastructure where these Nigerian tech workers can be at home in their home country. And this is part of the human interest side of these charter cities, right? Is there's all these people who like have to like leave their countries for economic opportunity to get access to reliable infrastructure or financing. And like, that's really sad. I mean, traveling is great if like you want to travel, right? That's amazing. I love to travel, but needing to leave your home country and your social networks and your family for economic opportunity, like that kind of sucks. And part of the idea of these communities is that we can bring really solid infrastructure and regulatory environments to places that don't have them so that people can work in these charter cities rather than having to leave the country. And so that's what Talent Cities is aiming to do in Nigeria is create a campus to repatriate Nigerian tech workers by making a place that's as, as nice to live, you know, both from an infrastructure, like how well does stuff work perspective 
as well as the legal environment. How easy is it to do business, to incorporate, et cetera? So that's one that I'm really excited about. They actually have an e-residency. I've, I decided just recently, I was like, man, all the projects I work with that are like doing things like these e-res, I need to apply myself. Like I want to be in. <laughs> so I've got my like Estonia e-residency passport application in because I was just meeting with them this summer. Yeah, this yeah. Talent Cities one. Prospera, you got your Prospera e-residency? Pro, uh, yep, I'm applying for the Prospera e-residency. And then in Palau, we're doing some really, really interesting work there. So Palau is this small archipelago in the in the Pacific. It has very strong ties to the U.S. And they're creating a digital residency. It's essentially, you can view it partly as, as like a way to demonstrate information to a sovereign that they can then attest to third parties. So for example, you could do your digital residency in Palau, go through KYC AML, and now anytime you need to open a wallet, Palau can attest that you've already been KYC AML by them and like other people don't don't need to, you know, that's part of the goal. But it, it could also be like other facts about yourself besides KYC AML. It's sort of a way to have a sovereign inspect you basically and then verify things about you and then test with other sovereigns. The other thing that I'm like super excited about in, in Palau that I'm working on is we're creating an offshore corporate registry the Palau X corporations working with, with the Palau government and a company called Metropolis on this law. And what these X corporations will let you do is incorporate in offshore in the jurisdiction of Palau using whatever body of corporate law you want, starting with Delaware. So rather than trying to come up with their own body of corporate law or copy someone else's body of corporate law, if we think from a software perspective, the X corporations, they just import it. They just say whatever the current corporate law of Delaware is, whatever the precedents that have been set in the chancery courts, that's what we'll use. And so when there's a corporate law case, you just use an arbitrator who's familiar with Delaware law, as most of them are, because it's like the most standard jurisdiction. And then they arbitrate according to Delaware law. And that's the first one. I mean, we're also looking at adding places like Singapore, which has become really big for crypto and other incorporations in Southeast Asia, Caymans, Taiwan, things like that. So the idea is you can like port your corporation into this offshore jurisdiction without having to change any of your corporate documents, right? Any of your motions, because you're under exactly the same body of law. It's just like moving a software server, moving like your web server from like one server to another that has the same tech stack. That's wild. So just to be clear, so every corporation there could have a borrowed law from different jurisdictions. So your company there could have a different set of laws than my company has there. Is that what you're saying? Well, in the same way that if you incorporate in the Caymans and I incorporate in Singapore, we have different bodies of corporate law. Yeah, 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 for so sure. So doing that same thing, but within one corporate registry. It's, uh, now, each of the bodies of law has to be like individually reviewed and approved by the government of Palau. But so you could have like a menu of kind of Exactly. You know, if one company's already done it for Delaware, then we already know that. And if another company's already done it for Cyprus and we like that, then those could be two of them. But if it was, I don't know, Panamanian civil law, which is, I mean, where I am right now, and you decided that that was the law you wanted there, then maybe you could bring it over and you might be the first one. So you would work through it and they would get approved. And then other people could follow in your footsteps using the same type of legal structure. Yeah. And I, I said, so for me in my career, two of my most generative metaphors, one of them is I've already talked about is this like governance as an industry, just like think of yourself as a customer, the countries or the firms. The other one is thinking of laws and institutions from the lens of software engineering. And so you can see that what this is law in Palau is doing, it's kind of modularizing and treating like software because the thing is, any law that's not a secret is open source. Law is open source by nature because it's published. So when you're going to form an, a new legal system, you can always refer to anybody else's law. So there's this ability to kind of copy and remix and import law that we're like not using that much that we really could be. I and mean, we see with software development, when you have open source software that lots of people are looking at, different people are trying different versions of it. You have forking where like somebody takes one body of code and says, I'm going to change it in this direction while you're changing it in this other direction and we'll see what works better. And then sometimes it's, oh, you tried this thing that we thought was crazy, but it actually worked out really well. We're going to bring that back to the main branch. We're going to incorporate that into the default version. Like we can do all of that with laws. 
So this is one of the things that I'm excited is finally starting to catch on after this is something that Balaji Srinivasan and I have been talking about for like over a decade now. Is laws are like code and that we can use these insights in order to make more flexible modular legal systems. So can you stack these as well? Cherry pick some of the best laws from this place, the best laws from this place? Because some people, mm-hmm. like I work in trusts and foundations and all the time. So sometimes we like some of those things from the trust laws from a common law country, but we want something else from a civil law. So are you able to stack these types of things? Or if you take one, you have to take all the good, bad, and ugly that come with it. No, I mean, it's again, it laws like software, right? So you can pick and choose, but then there is work because law hasn't been thought of as software. It hasn't been written to like a consistent API or module structure, right? So it needs to be restructured and there's work that has to be done. If you take law from different jurisdictions, right? The definitions don't always match up. There is like a bunch of work that has to be done to reconcile, but it is possible. And, you know, I'll just say, Like the bold prediction, like I think over time, over the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to see bodies of law changing to be more modular and have clearer APIs and more able to be remixed because the bodies of law that do that are going to work better. They're going to innovate faster and then they're going to get copied more because, again, because like law is open source. And so we're going to see a lot more progress And this whole world, we're in the same way, like, oh, I'm going to build like a tech app. Okay, what is my stack? What's my database? And what's my web server and all that? And, you know, I'm going to kind of put it together. You might be like, all right, I'm going to start a city. What's my trust law? What's my corporate law? Like, what's my zoning codes? Let me put it together and then customize the parts of it that I'm excited to customize. We're like, no, no, my community wants to do this. We want our laws in this area. Maybe it's about banning high fructose corn syrup. It's something I'd kind of like to see being being done. (laughs) And like, along with like trans paths and stuff, like we're going to do, you know, the laws about what food products are allowed here differently. And then like you customize that. And just having this whole world of different communities, different countries are each like testing different variations of the modules, different combinations of the modules, and just getting this whole industry kind of operating and innovating at more like the speed of tech. Because it can, because law is by its nature. It's a set of instructions. It is just like computer code. It's virtual, right? In the same way that you can take a piece of code and be like, hey, run it on these thousand computers. Or you can take a server and be like, okay, we're going to change from this to this. You can just buy an act of a government can say, okay, we're going to change the laws in this area to be this. Well, in math, we'd call it an isomorphism, but like basically like the similarity between law and code. It's not just a superficial metaphor. It's actually pretty deep. And I think that humanity as a species, we can get a lot of mileage out of embracing that metaphor and kind of getting in and building. So one of the things that Palau could do, or or kind of sounds like it is doing, reminds me of in cryptocurrency with the interoperability, where you have two different types of blockchains and then how to make them communicate with one another. So with this, with different type of legal systems, being able to fit them together and have it come in seamlessly, I mean, this is stuff I've never thought about before. I actually know more of your work from the free private cities and charter cities and these types of things, but I've never heard you talk about these things before from the legal side. So this is really amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Glad you're enjoying it. It's it's really like the other half of it. You know, it's like the startup countries, you know, that whole like entrepreneurship and business metaphor, but then the other half is law is code. And what Honduras Prospera did for their body of regulations is they were able to look around the world at different legal systems and kind of pick and choose and assemble a combination of them. Another project I'm involved with, uh, ULEX, the Universal Legal System with Tom Bell, is trying to create sort of like a, you can almost think of it like a Linux kernel for law. So just simplified version of the best practices for law kind of very, very minimal. So like not trying to have the regulations of car emissions or something very, very specific like that, but what's the most basic definitions of people and contracts and interactions and things like that. And it's actually, it's open source. It's literally on GitHub. So I'm really excited about that stuff. Well, you say that it's open source, but I can also see it being an industry where people would compete to create laws or to simplify things and have things plug and play where that could be a business in itself. And we're seeing so many nation states who are now state-run capital, if they could actually make their legal systems the most attractive and then export that to foreign countries and be compensated for that type of legal work. I mean, 
I think that would be a great thing. Like usually I want to see everything that's open source. I want to see everything that's completely transparent. But at the same time, I could see a reason that you want to have intellectual property rights on these types of things. And then you're rewarded for making laws fair and just and popular and laws that are going to attract the right type of people, wealthy people, entrepreneurial people, people with a good head on their shoulders, you know, whatever the criteria it is that you are looking for to fill the populace of your country. If you can style those types of laws, the best popular, then being rewarded for that work, I think is important. Yeah. I mean, and we have models from open source software to learn from for how to reward people for contributing. It's just I think what I'm saying is that I agree that it would be awesome for a law entrepreneur to be able to have intellectual property in laws, but just because the nature of law is that we humans hate living under like secret hidden laws. And so they're all basically like published. It means they're like kind of all automatically open source. And that means that people in other jurisdictions like can always just copy them. And that it kind of is what it is. But fortunately, we've got decades of the open source movement to show like how you can still compensate people for, I mean, there's still like how effectively does the government implement them and operate them? How well does it combine and harmonize the different modules? How quickly does it update for new circumstances? I think that you can still get really significant reward while just accepting the fact, oh, you know, like there's a difference between, so my dad's a, an economist of law and economics. And so there's a difference between like things that are like fully revealed by use and not revealed by use. So like a movie, when you watch a movie, you're getting to see everything, the entire output product. And so there's kind of like no way to stop someone from pirating that because they can always record the entire output product. But when you play a, an MMORPG, right? Like a multiplayer role-playing game, you're just going to this region or that region and interacting with the server in this way is like, you're not getting the entire thing in your experience. And so, or when you're using Google, right, you go and do a Google search, like you're getting the results, but you're not getting the code that generated those results. And so for those things, they can actually be kept secret. And I think that laws are of that first type where they're fully revealed. And so we just kind of need to accept that and use those mechanisms. But like all of the rest of the process of setting up a jurisdiction and establishing courts and making sure that they're fair and efficient, all of that can be the secret sauce for a company. Well, to use a very super, super simple example, I think about websites in terms of conditions and disclaimer policies and privacy policies and cookie policies and all of these types of things. I own probably about 20 websites right now, and every one of them has to have slightly different ones. So I'm very happy to pay a third-party company. And it's kind of like a, a McDonald's menu. You know, I want this, 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 and this, and they put it all together and you just fill in your information. And at the end comes out all the legal work for all of these types of policies that I have to have. And every website is slightly different because the purpose of the website is slightly different and you know how it all fits together is slightly different. So you could see systems or companies or businesses that would have a similar type of function or working, but in a much more complex manner. You know, instead of it taking you a few minutes to go through, it could be months or something like that, but still the same type of flexibility and modular, as you had said before. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So to circle back, because we have gone on a little bit of a tangent on the laws, which I love, which I think is is yeah. so brilliant and it's is a really new out. thing. Yeah, exactly. So I, my mind's already shifting, you know, my gears are going like, well, what about this? What if we did that? What if we put this together? So how does this fit into your fund? Because I mean, we've talked about two related things, but kind of different things, but I want to understand how it all fits together in your fund. Yeah, absolutely. So the way it works is that I think of these sovereign communities as kind of creating GDP, just creating like economic activity and value. And then they capture a share of that GDP, generally with some combination of taxes and rents. And, you know, as a libertarian, I used to be like really against taxes. But when I shift to this viewpoint of you're a consumer of a product and there's some price that you pay in order to get governance services, it kind of makes sense to me. And also the idea that if you want to incent the city owner to be like maximizing the value that people create, giving them an equity share in that value makes sense. Like from the Silicon Valley startup world and like, what is taxes? Like it's, if the city gets seven and a half percent and that's a random number, seven and a half percent is the lowest that you can do and not be counted as like a tax haven. And so you still get full access to the global financial systems. So you can charge seven and a half percent. And it's like, if the city owner is able to bring in more people who are creating value or adjust the laws to create 
more value or just the infrastructure so that people are making more value, they then have an equity share of that. And if they're able to create a ton of value, then they make like a ton of money. And so those are the main mechanisms. So you're creating value by getting a group of people to come and live together in a community, to redo some of the systems they live under, to do them better, and then to like grow and thrive and bring in lots of other people and like scale up from a village to a town, to a small city, to a big city. And then our fund invests, you know, generally pretty early, like pre-seed or seed. Series A is about the latest right now when these Communities are kind of negotiating with governments, finding the people who are, who are going to live there and bringing them together before they have the big land and infrastructure costs we invest. And then we have a share in the operating company that's then operating this real estate. And, you know, taxes and rents is, you know, they're two of the biggest expenses for a lot of people. So that's like plenty a slice of GDP to capture. And I just love the incentive alignment. The, the more value you create in the zone, the, the more revenue the company has. And so as a fund, we invest in these operating entities that are creating these communities. And we're just seeing such growth around the world and like more and more of these being started. Some of the ones that we've funded growing, like Honduras Prospera is, is building like the largest towers on the island of Roatan right now, the Duna residences, where each of the four towers would individually be the highest structure on the entire island. And so there's a lot of really exciting growth. And so we're working on new investment vehicles to be able to invest later stage in this real estate. And kind of like when we're the first investors in a project, we get to know them really well. We get to see which ones are doing well and be able to choose follow-on investments wisely. And so we're expanding our AUM right now. And yeah, just excited to help these invest in more of these projects and and help them grow. At our website, pronomos.vc, you can find our angel list, our Twitter, and there's a contact form for people who are interested in learning more about the investment opportunities or in starting these communities themselves. You know, we're always looking for interested investors and founders. It's just kind of the nature of the world that those are often the shortage. We're in this incredible position where, you know, just five years ago, there was only Honduras. And the CSANG Institute was trying to work with French Polynesia. But now we actually have like a bunch of countries around the world, like literally like we need to hire someone. Once we raise a bit more AUM, we need to hire someone to be like full-time government relations partnership because we have more governments interested in working with us than we have time to work with, or than we have great founders to put on them. So it's such an exciting like opportunity. That's not the barrier anymore. Like the world being open to this, we just need to get capital. We need to get great people and slot them into projects. We're shifting into a little bit, you know, you asked me earlier what I'm excited about. We're shifting into a little bit more of like a studio mode. We've always been pretty hands-on because this is a totally brand new industry. Nobody's ever done this before. Like we're all inventing it together. And we're seeing a few opportunities around the world, especially in West Africa right now, that are so good that we're going to, as a fund, going to kind of get hands-on. We're working with a couple governments directly to set up projects and set up founding teams ourselves. So incubating, you can think about a little bit like Y Combinator, just because there's just some really exciting opportunities and we, we want to make sure they get built and get built well. So yeah, that's that's kind of how it works. Well, amazing, because I've seen that this is the trend. I mean, I've been following these types of things for several years now, but really over the last year or two, I really see this as one of the biggest trends in the 21st century. This idea of governance and how people organize themselves is just such a massive topic. And I'm so surprised that it's not being talked about literally everywhere. It's still on the fringe, but I just see it as one of the biggest trends going forwards. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so it's so fun seeing it become real. So this, you know, I've been working on an, an investment deck for our next raise. And this is the first time I've been working on this stuff for 20 years. And I'm actually able to put real life pictures of real <laughs> life projects in the real world that have been built and are growing fast into like my materials, right? It took 21 years to get to being able to do that but I'm but I'm there now and it's so fun to be able to like go out I'm going to be able to go out and raise hey this is actual stuff that's built and working and scaling and we want to invest in growing it that's amazing patrick I love today's conversation super fascinating you gave the website once before but once again if people want to get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your work where can we send them it's pronomos.vc p r o n o m o s.vc 
I'd say Twitter, AngelList for investors, but there's also Facebook and LinkedIn. The word uh, nomos was the ancient Greek word for custom, but then it became the word for law because they understood that laws kind of were bottom up. They were like enshrined, like a custom that was practiced for a long period of time. Okay, let's make that a law. And it survives today in the word numismatics, which is collecting old money, because their word for money, nomisma, was based on the word for custom, because they said money is only accepted by custom. It only like is worth something if people choose to accept it. So they're pretty wise 2,000 years ago. So pro, of course, means good towards. So pro nomos meaning towards good law. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Wonderful. Hey, I need a quick favor from you. Can you put today's episode on pause for about 30 seconds? Go to your podcast app and leave our show a review. What this does is it lets everyone else out there in the world know that our show has value. We're really trying to spread the word and get more people involved in the podcast. And the best way to do that is to leave reviews. It won't take you very long and it's really easy to do. The most popular one is Apple Podcasts. So you can either do that from an iPhone or if you're on a PC or a laptop or anything like that and you have iTunes, if you've downloaded that and you have an account, then you can leave the show a review. So that's it. Show your support. Leave the podcast a review. I read every single one and I will start incorporating them into our episodes and read them throughout the episodes. You might even hear your review featured in a future episode. So thanks so much. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.